morning. So, Advent, we've tagged unexpected, and something unexpected that happened to me last week in the lobby. I was talking to a young lady who's 32 years old. She's single, and she was giving me feedback on the 707 service and what she was hearing from um, the circle she was in, and she was saying the the 30-somethings, the late 20-ish age group um, are not planning on going to the 707. And I was like, wait, what? And I, she's like, yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not planning on it. And here's why. And when she, as she began to explain why, I started going, oh, I didn't communicate very well. Because if that's what they walked away with, that is not what was intended. So, so the response was unexpected for me, right? And so she said, yeah, they, they, they don't want to come hang out with a bunch of college kids. I went, well, it's not a college service. And she goes, really? Like, What's going on? And then I had another conversation with a 74-year-old lady, uh, Miss Patty, who is actually younger in soul than any college student. Um, but but Miss Patty was saying, she goes, hey, is it okay if we come to the 707? Uh, me and my friend, she works till 5, so 707 is probably going to work better. I'm like, what do you mean, is it okay if you come? She goes, well, I don't want to be out of place. Okay, let me recommunicate, because obviously I did a bad job, Okay. That 707 service, that fifth service, is just like all the others. What you get in the morning, you will get in the evening. It's not, it's not like we're completely switching up the music and all of that. It's the same thing. We are just anticipating that we will make it easier for age groups to go to church by providing a service at that time. So here's what we mean. By providing it at 707, college kids are just waking up. It's perfect for them. Um, right? So... <laughs> Young professionals who work, and, and that's a time frame that works for them because they're so busy with, with other stuff, right? Singles who are whatever age, we want you there. We want you there. Um, so hear me well. If you're 18, 30, 74, you are welcome at the 707. It is not going to be a college service, okay? We good? All right, see you there. Um, okay, so Advent, unexpected. My first Christmas as a married man, okay? I got married on December the 16th, 1995. Yes, I remember the date. It's one of the few things I remember. Um, get married on December 16th. Christmas is pretty close to that, right? Just a couple of days later. Um, my wife and I had no money, and, and we, we were college students and had, had no money, and we went, okay, for Christmas, let's just take X amount of dollars, go to Walmart. That way, no one can go over their budget because it's Walmart, you know what I mean? Like... You can find something in that price range, and, and let's just buy gifts for each other. So I'm like, man, this is my first gift for my new bride. It has to be good. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I am like scouring the aisles, like trying to figure this out. The search is on at Walmart, right? And, and, and it comes Christmas Day, and, and the present's wrapped, and I can't wait to give it to my bride. And, and she opens it, and I can instantly tell she hates it. Like... There is nothing within her that's happy about what she just unwrapped, but she does the fake smile, you know, oh, it's great. And I'm like, no, it's not, liar, liar. Um, but no, I didn't yell liar. I just was like, oh, you really like it? Yeah, I love it. And inside I'm going, she hates it, right? I don't know what I was thinking, okay? Don't judge me. I bought her a music box. Thank you. Thank you. Now, a normal music box that opens that you could keep jewelry in, that might have a purpose. 
The one I bought had no purpose. It was like this ceramic, it had a little turnstile thing on it. It was like a sewing machine with mice on it. Don't judge me. I don't know why. To this day, I don't know why I thought she would like that, but that's what she got. But here's the thing, right? Her response was unexpected. When I gave it to her, I expected her to like it. I don't know why, but I expected her to like it. And her response was completely different. It, the outcome was not what I expected. And today in the story, as we get into the story that we're going to look at, there, there are unexpected parts within the narrative. You, you don't see it coming. It, it, it's, it's crazy unexpected who ends up the heroes. But what's not unexpected is the outcome. And, and this morning as we get into it, the narrative is unexpected. But what I want to give you before you leave here today is I want to give you something that you can guarantee. You can, you can walk out of here knowing this will be the outcome. And so the story is found in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, if you have a Bible, turn there. We're going to start in verse 1. If, if uh, you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand. Someone will get you one. But Matthew chapter 2, and, and it's, a, it's a story that you probably know well. It's a story that, that you, you've probably sung songs about. You've, you, if you have a nativity scene at your house, you probably have these dudes in it, right? Um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But what Matthew does for us is Matthew frames up a context, because Matthew tells us after Jesus was born, after Jesus was born. Okay, there's our first part of the context. After Jesus was born. Now, we don't know if that is two days. We don't know if that's six months. We don't know if that's that the highest that it's kind of said to be is two years. And there, there's a reason for that because Herod goes in a little later and kills all the babies that are under two, right? You can read about that a little later as you keep reading. But... The context we're given is it's somewhere in this time frame of it could be two years, it could be two days. But after Jesus was born, and then Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And so Matthew was trying to prove the Messiahship of Jesus. He's trying to prove certain things that would back up prior scriptures. And so he specifically states then that he was born in Bethlehem. Okay, you remember chapter 1? There's all those names and it's like this lineage thing going on for the first 17 verses. And he's proving the, the royal line of Jesus, right? So, so he proves the royal line. Chapter 2 then, he now begins to go, okay, geographically, Jesus was born exactly where we were told the Messiah was. And this story kind of unpacks that for us. But what he's doing is he's telling a Jewish audience that would have studied the scripture, would know the scriptures. He's going, hey, Jesus, the Messiah, was born where he was supposed to. So he was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. So, so now not only does he give us a geographical time stamp, so to speak, he also gives, sorry, geographical location. He then gives us a time stamp. He said it's in the time of King Herod. We'll come back to King Herod in a little bit. But, but specifically now, during the reign of King Herod, this took place, this story that's about to unfold. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Okay, so, so the Magi, we, we sing songs like We Three Kings, right? The only reason we say three is because there was three gifts, Right? We, we call them kings, but the Magi were not kings. The Magi were, in Eastern tradition, the Magi were a group of people who were advisors to a king. Now, location-wise, this group of Magi, this group of advisors to the king, they, they were 
Some say they were from the Persian priestly caste, right? So they were Persian in descent, and, and they had access to the king. They were advisors to the king. Some say they were Babylonian, and, and so they, they came from that region. Here, here's what you need to know. They came from the east. Roughly, either of those areas would be 800 to 900 miles away from Jerusalem. This was not like, hey, let's jump in the Range Rover and cruise down the road and, and we'll, we'll go to Jerusalem. This was, this was like, we are going to make a trek. The, these, these advisors to the king where they were, they were going to make a trek 800 to 900 miles, which would have been treacherous. There would have been all kinds of dangers that faced them. There would have been all kinds of plans that had to be made. This wasn't just something where they just got up and went, hey, we're just going to do this. Let's go. This was something that required an immense amount of, of planning and determination to even pull off. Now, they were advisors to the king. They were learned men. They were, they were extremely smart. In fact, in Daniel, when, when the, the king Nebuchadnezzar calls in people to interpret dreams, he calls in the wise men. That would have been this line, this magi. That would have been those people. Right? There's a, there's a theory that, that these people actually learned about the Messiah through Daniel. We don't know if that's true or not. That's just something that you could chase later if you want to. But, but there's this idea that these guys, these wise men, these learned men, they also interpreted dreams. They, they also not only interpreted dreams, they read the stars. They were astrologers. And on top of that, they, they also were, were known to have... Um, messed around, dabbled in, if you like, with magic, different types of magic. So what that does, just by simply knowing those details in a biblical context, that now separates them out from anything religious that you find in Scripture. In fact, the Jewish people and later the church, they would have had to to actually, like, they would have disassociated from people like the Magi. It's so unexpected that the people we find in the second chapter of the story that's telling the birth of Jesus are these people, first of all, who were 800 to 900 miles away, but are the ones that, that, that would have been disassociated with by the ones claiming to follow God. So just simply the fact that a Jewish man who is writing to a Jewish audience is including wise men should tell us thousands of years later that it's probably true because he had nothing to gain. That if you were going to make up a story about the Messiah, you weren't going to choose these guys as the ones that were coming. And so it continues on. They came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Where is the one that has been born? Okay, so, so they're, they're coming with the expectation of this guy is already here. Now, a couple of things about this star. When they saw the star, right, and we saw his star. In, in Eastern culture, especially at this time, when a new star appeared or a new star rose, it was believed to be connected to the birth of a significant person. Okay, so, so already in their culture, if you see a new star, you see something happening in the stars, you instantly associate that this is a part of the significant birth uh, or the birth of a significant person. So with that in mind, then, when they say that they saw his star, what was the star? Bible scholars 
historians, astrologers, they're like all over the place, right? But they've come up with, with three things that they interpret that it could have been. One is that it could have been a comet, right? That a comet passed by and they saw the comet. And so this is what led them in that direction. Um, the problem with the comet is there's nothing recorded from a historical perspective that would be around that date. In fact, everything to do with a comet would have been roughly about 12 to 11 years too, too soon. So, so there's nothing recorded from a comet standpoint, right? So that's, that's theory one, that this star was a comet. Theory two, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. Theory two is that there was a planetary conjunction, meaning two planets kind of came close to each other and they looked like a, a brighter, bigger star at that moment. And, they, and it's believed, too, that, that Jupiter, which is the planet of royalty, or associated with royalty, and Saturn, the planet that's, a, that's associated with the Westlands, that these two planets, so royalty and Westlands, kind of came together, and that's how they came up with this idea that, oh, in the West, which is where Jerusalem was, in the West, this, this royalty has been born. We've got to go see this royalty. So, so you've got the comet, you've got planetary conjunction, and then you have um, the, the idea that it could be a supernova. By the way, the planets are still about seven years off when they were recorded to have happened. The, the next one is then that there was some kind of supernova, right? That a star was dying and it exploded. Uh, the Chinese, um, about five years off date-wise, but the Chinese actually have recorded that you could see a supernova for seven months during that time. So, so the, the theory is, well, it could have been a supernova that stayed bright and it was in its spot. We'll come back to the star. Those are the three things. We'll come back to it in a little bit. But they saw something in the sky. And, and they said, we saw his star. They associated it with this Messiah, this one that was to come. And they said, because of that, we've come to worship him. So we're here. And so, so they come into Jerusalem. And, and why Jerusalem? That was the city of David. If you were looking for the king of the Jews, by the way, for those of you that like this stuff, king of the Jews was always used in Matthew's gospel by outsiders. The next place it shows up is in is later on in Matthew at the cross when they're making fun of him, the king of the Jews. It's always by outsiders. It's their way of saying the Messiah. And so Matthew's being very clear that these people were not Jewish. These people were not part of the, the Jewish nation, part of Israel. They were on this trek from a long ways away. So they come in. They come into Jerusalem, which is the city of David, which is, which is the royalty, right? They come into, into Jerusalem, and their assumption is this, that if a king has been born, everyone will know about it. I'm English. You ever notice that when a royal baby is born, the entire planet knows, right? Because you celebrate the birth of royalty. And so the, the idea was when they came into Jerusalem and they're going, hey, where, where, where's this baby? The, you know, the one that's been born, the king of the Jews, where is he? Where is he? And so they're going all through the city, and the assumption is that if this baby had been born, someone would know, right? Someone, someone would go, oh, yeah, 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 over here, right? Go to the palace. So somewhere along the way of them coming into the city, word gets back to this guy, King Herod. Next verse. When King Herod heard this, so King Herod now hears the rumblings of this king of the Jews that's been born. He was disturbed. Now, disturbed is not is not good as a translation. It's not good enough. It it, it doesn't unpack it enough. He was terrified. He was intensely afraid, right? Why would King Herod, who, who, who rules, why would he all of a sudden, just at the mention of the king of the Jews, 
become unnerved to the point where he will do anything to keep his throne. Well, King Herod was half Jewish, half Edomite. He wasn't a full Jew, and he had ascended to the throne on the heels of Rome. And and so by ascending to the throne, the way that he kept power was by violence and threat and oppression. And so for King Herod, he was also extremely paranoid. And we know this historically because he would have family members killed, murdered, who gave even the slightest hint that they were trying to take his place. So so you have a man in the story, you have a central character within the story who is holding on to his title, his position, he is anchored in, and he will do whatever it takes to keep it. And he knows that if this king of the Jews shows up, it's going to be a threat to his power, threat to his, his world, his lifestyle, where he is. It also says, and all of Jerusalem with him. So, so King Herod is intensely afraid, but then, then it also says that all of Jerusalem, now I don't think all of Jerusalem gathered in the palace, and I, I think this is more of a feeling of, of what Matthew's writing is, as the general census among the Jewish people in Jerusalem was, they were afraid. They, they were unnerved by this news. Now remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, right? All the way through Matthew, he's proving over and over that it was the Jewish people that rejected their Messiah. And and so he begins laying ground for that here when he says all of Jerusalem with him. Next verse. When he had called together all the people's chief priests, there was 24 orders and teachers of the law. Teachers of the law were people that were, they were scribes. They, they would write down and they would, they would make sure that the scriptures were kept consistent as they were translated. But then they became, uh, they started to give opinion on it and they started to, to interpret it, and so they became teachers of the law. So he gathers those people, right? The people that should know what's going on. King Herod gathers them, and he asks them where the Messiah was to be born. So King Herod kind of tips his hand at this point. King Herod, as the king, should know the scriptures. He's tipping his hand going, I don't really know what's going on. Like, where's, where's, who's this king? Where's he going to be born? Next verse. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, so the, the religious leaders open the scriptures. They take him to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and part of 4, and they, they begin to tell him, This is where... In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. In Bethlehem is where you can look for the Messiah. Now, this is where the story gets staggering to me, okay? Because these guys that are opening God's word, that are opening the scriptures, that are taking him to chapter and verse of a prophet. By the way, a prophet was someone who spoke on behalf of God, right? So a prophet had declared... But you, Bethlehem, right, the, the, the location was like right here. The Messiah is coming and he's coming right here. These people are the ones who claim, man, we follow this God. We read his scriptures. We obey his scriptures. Right. We trust in his scriptures. These same people are five to six miles from Bethlehem. Where are they in the story? In Jerusalem. If the Messiah is coming there, why are you here? If the scripture's telling you something, why aren't you essentially doing it, believing it, trusting it, acting on it? Right? 
Any Elvis fans in the room? Okay, good amount of you. Okay, let's say that God uses a prophet and the prophet tells you Elvis is coming back to life. Okay, sorry if you think he's still alive, he's dead. Okay, Elvis is coming back to life. God is going to raise Elvis back to life and, and he's coming back to life in Prescott Valley. Don't you think that if you were really a fan of Elvis, you would get up and go where? Prescott Valley, because Elvis is coming back. How do you know? God said it. Okay, that's like this big, right? The Messiah, the one you have been waiting for, the one who's going to rescue all of humanity, the one who's going to make everything right, the one that is going to sit on the throne of David forever, the one that you have waited for, that has been promised. He is coming, and he's five miles down the road. Isn't it amazing that it's the ones that are coming from 800 to 900 miles that are going, and the ones who say they trust Jesus or trust God, the ones that say they believe in the Scriptures, are five miles away and completely miss it. I don't have to make a point, but I think there's some, this Advent season, I think there's some of that that connects with our hearts. That, man, we have the completed scriptures. We have the risen Savior. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. We know exactly what he wants from us. And yet we stay five miles down the road. Next verse. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Why? Because in Eastern culture... When the star appears, it it is connected to the birth of a significant person. So he's going, okay, when did it actually show up? He's trying to timeline it, right? Next verse. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Because everybody who's worked up, terrified, scared, sweating just by the mention, like you know they're going to go worship, right? So next verse. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Next verse. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. We have some, some traditions within our culture and within this story. And, and one of them doesn't line up with the scripture we just read. Because somewhere the star appeared and they went and they ended up in Jerusalem, right? But then it says, the star, go back to the last verse, sorry. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And then it says in the next verse that they were overjoyed. Why would you be overjoyed if the star had been there the whole time? I mean, it's not just a slight like, oh, yeah, I'm happy the star's there. Cool. It's like exceedingly over the top with joy. As much joy as you can have, we don't know how to express that in language. That's what it is. That's how they felt. You see, we have this impression that the, 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 the wise men were like, oh, look, star. Yep, it's going this way. Nope, back that way. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, we're going this way. Nope, this way. Right? We have this impression that the star moved and they followed every step of the star. The story doesn't tell it that way. 
The story tells it that they saw something and they went. And then when the star reappears, they get overjoyed by the star. But it, it tells us in that last verse that it stopped over a specific house. Okay, if it's a comet, what did it do? Another loop? Right? And just buzz a little closer? If it's, if it's planetary conjunction, right? The planet's like, back up. Right? If it's a supernova, and I didn't think about this. I wish I would have thought about this before I said it last night. But if it's a supernova and it's an explosion and it's coming down and marking a specific house, I think they find, like, crispy people. Right? It has to be something else. And maybe one of the things we need to do this Advent is just put the miraculous back in the story. That that maybe what's really going on is, you know, the glory of God that showed up in a temple and it's just a column that's in the temple because it's God declaring, I am here. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's the same light that showed up on a hill to a group of shepherds that the glory shone all around and they were terrified. Maybe it's the same light that Saul, Saul finds, right? Maybe it's the same light... This glory, this God displaying himself in his presence that Moses came across. Maybe, just maybe, it's the same glory that you find in the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. Maybe what's really happening is that it's not a star they see, but it's the very glory of God that's going, you want to know where I am, I will show you where I am. And it goes and it stops over a house. And it's God declaring to the world, I am here. And it says that the wise men were overjoyed and they came. Next verse. On coming to the house. Coming to the house. That's how we know there's a timeline, right? They didn't come to a stable. They came to a house. They saw the child with his mother Mary. By the way, let's be really, really, really clear because I don't want you walking out of here not being clear. Mary was the mother of Jesus. This child is Jesus. So the glory of God is now stopped. The glory of God is shone down. The glory of God is, is, is pointed to a specific house and now a specific child. And the glory of God is just declaring over, over this idea of Christmas that I am here. My presence is here and my name is Jesus. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Here's what I know about Christmas. That you have men that come from 800 to 900 miles away, which, which by the way, that's like, think of the longest journey you've ever taken back in those days. That's what that was. They come from way over there and they are the ones that end up sitting in the very spot where God goes, my presence is here. My presence is a person and his name is Jesus. And I want you to catch what it does for them because it says first, and they bowed down. Did you know that when you come into the presence of Jesus, when you come face to face with Jesus, whether for the first time, whether for I don't know how many times in your life, but when you slow down and you get in the presence of Jesus, who is God, by the way, when you come into the presence of the living God, when you get in the presence of Jesus, your natural posture is 
away from you. I cannot, you ever, you ever notice that you cannot bow and worship you? It's impossible. And what the presence of Jesus does, and maybe during the Christmas season we need it more than ever because it's really the season of me, it's really the season of mine, it's really the season of I. Maybe what we need more in this reminder of what Christmas was, that there were wise men that came, there were, there were men that came from afar, and when they saw Jesus for who he was, when they saw Jesus in the glory of God, when they saw Jesus in the presence of God, their natural posture was away from themselves. Maybe what we need more than anything during this season is to get back into the presence of Jesus and recognize that it's not about us, it's about Him. Because then something else happens. They worshipped. They worshipped. They gave Him His dues. They recognized Him for who He is. By the way, when I get in the presence of Jesus and I begin to recognize Him for who He is, I cannot think that I'm a big deal. I cannot sit in the presence of my Savior and go, oh, I'm the Savior. I cannot sit in the presence of my provider and go, I'm the provider. I cannot sit in the presence of the one who's writing the story and go, I'm the author. It's impossible. And so what starts to happen is I start to go, you're God. I'm not. You're my Savior. I don't have to be. See, the bowing down is surrender. The worship is ascribing to Him what he really deserves. I don't know about you, but my to-do list is far greater than hours I have in my day. And then you throw on top of that stuff that I got to do to make sure that like other people are happy and all that kind of stuff and because it's the season of making everybody happy, right? It's exhausting. But you know what I find? That when I center myself back on the presence of Jesus, on the person of Jesus, and I'm reminded that He's my Savior, all of a sudden I don't have to strive. All of a sudden I'm reminded in the face of grace that He's done it all. All of a sudden I'm reminded in that moment that, that, hey, hey, John, hey, John, I'll provide for you. You stop trying to do everything. Trust me a little bit more. And see, something else happens. Then, then they open their treasures. See, something happens when I come into the presence of Jesus, when I'm face to face with Jesus, when I spend time with Jesus, when I recognize Jesus for who he is, when I worship Jesus, something happens to my heart. The things that I treasure, they no longer are treasures. You see how that works? It's no longer me striving to attain or keep or hold. King Herod, by the way, King Herod in the story, ends by killing a whole bunch of people. Why? Because he's trying to keep his position, keep his title, keep hold of what he has. He will be the one that does it. The Jews, they never moved. They missed it. You know who's not in your nativity scene? The Jewish leaders. You ever notice that? And I don't mean to be mean to them. I'm just telling you like it is. You never see the Jewish leaders in your nativity scene. Why? Because they were five miles down the road. But something happens when I come into the presence of the living God, when I recognize, when I anchor myself in the person of Jesus, the treasures that I hold so dear, all of a sudden my hands go from this to this. My heart goes from get to give. It's amazing. It's amazing. And maybe during the Christmas season, what we need more of is the presence of Jesus so we are in the mode of give, not get. 
we're in the moment of what, what, what do you want to do with it, God? See, see, what you find in their bag, they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there's, there's all kinds of like connections that you can make with this. But, but all I want you to get from the gifts is they were gifts of royalty. What they did is they, they came into the presence of Jesus. And in that moment, what they had, what they had is that they called treasure. They went, it's not enough. We'll just give it to you because you're worthy. And all of a sudden, everything they had just went. And something else happens with them. Next verse. And having been warned in a dream, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. When you come into the presence of Jesus and you spend time face to face with Jesus, when you allow him to begin to rearrange and reorganize and, and reevaluate and, and your hands become open, the next thing you do is you go, where do you want me to go? Where should we go? And he begins to tell you. And sometimes he'll tell you in ways that that you don't understand and you just got to trust him and go. You know, one of the things I love about the wise men, that walking by faith is the freedom to fail. Here's what I mean. They went to Jerusalem before they went to Bethlehem. That gives me hope, y'all. That gives me hope. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to have all the next steps figured out. I just have to be willing to go, Jesus, I'm going to sit here. You tell me where to go and I'll go there. And we'll figure it out when we get there. You'll lead a little more. And you'll lead a little more. And you'll lead a little more. Remember I told you at the beginning that the narrative, there's, there's unexpected parts of the narrative. The unexpected parts are that these people who are 800 to 900 miles away are the ones that sit in your nativity scene in your house all these years later. That's crazy. Only God could write that. But the outcome isn't unexpected. And here's what I mean. When you sit in the presence of Jesus, when you will take the time to realign yourself with who He is and who you are, the outcome of your life will always be one of posture that takes you away from you. A posture that puts worship on him, not you. And, and allows you to take your treasures and go, what do you want to do? And allows your feet to move where he wants you to go. That outcome is guaranteed every single time. You know why Herod didn't come and worship? Because it would have meant he had to give up his throne and his title. What are you holding on to? What, during this Christmas season, who... Who in the story do you find yourself going, man, I'm more like that? Because Advent is about realigning. Advent is about slowing down in a season that the world says it's busy. Advent is a time when I, we just come into a space and go, man, I'm going to focus on you and let that change everything. So church, that's what we're going to do. That's where we're going to be. That's where we're going to walk. And who knows what stories God writes on the other side. And now history remembers a family called Heights Church who just came into the presence of the living God. Who just focused their lives around this person of Jesus. A group of people who declared Him Savior. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank You so much for, for loving us the way You do. Thank You, God, that God, you weren't bound by cultural rights or, or rules or traditions. Or, and you took a group of men. We don't even know how many. We just know there was three gifts. But you took a group of men 
on a journey, God, that would define so much for us in a season that you knew we would become distracted, that you knew we would make something it's not, that you knew we would feel pressures to be something that you never created us to be. And so, God, in a, in a season when the world says that we, we should produce and give more and, and they define the values, God, would you help us, your people, today? Would you realign our hearts to yours? Would you remind us that we have a Savior? Would you remind us that your glory showed up in a person and it's the person of Jesus? Would you remind us that you walked amongst us? Would you remind us that you died, that we might be set free, that we could be set free even in the Christmas season? God, would you remind us as we have joy and in these next moments as we sing about this joy, would you remind us that we have a God who saves Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for coming near and declaring you are with us. We love you. And everybody said...